And this morning we're going to be talking about how important it is to be clear about who Jesus is and what he came to do. When we can be clear on who Jesus is and what he came to do, things are on track. Christians are on track. The church is on track. We can know what our purpose is. We can know what our mission is. We can know what to do with resources. We can know how to worship. When we know who Jesus is and what He came to do. The problem is, it is so easy for us to forget about who Jesus is and to lose sight of what He came to accomplish. This is a reality not just in the church, it's a reality not just for us as Christians, it's, it's a general truism for any organization, right? If an organization knows its identity and they know it's uh, what they're here for, it's generally going to be a healthy kind of organization. They can know how to do the, use their resources, they can know how to function, they can know what to do, what to prioritize. The church is in a great place, Christians are in a great place, remembering Jesus, remembering what He came to do. We're in a dangerous place, and we go there too often. We lose sight of who Jesus is. We lose sight of what He came to do. Luke chapter 9 is our text this morning where we're going to be warned of some dangers of losing sight of who Jesus is and what He came to do. If you have a Bible, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Luke. In the ninth chapter, we're going to look at verses 37 to 62. And if you're taking notes this morning and it helps you to follow along, we'll be able to identify five spiritual dangers. Five dangers associated with forgetting Jesus, forgetting what His focus is and what He came to do. There's something in me, um, knowing how easily we drift away, there's something in me that is sort of... uh, prone to fantasizing and thinking. Maybe you can identify. If we were only in the first century. You know, so the church loses sight of Christ, they lose sight of the gospel, and we drift here and we drift there. And as the song says, we are indeed prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. We're prone to wonder. History proves we as Christians and as churches are prone to wonder. Not only history, but in our own life history. So easy to lose our focus. If we could only be with Jesus, then we wouldn't wonder. Ha! Huh. <laughs> you know, we, we shouldn't wish bad on anyone, but maybe there's something satisfying in seeing that when they're with Jesus in the first century, they were as prone to wonder as we are. And while we don't want to gloat in it and say they're no better than we are, there's something encouraging because Jesus doesn't abandon them then. So it's encouraging to see he didn't abandon them then and they were with him. And so when we're prone to wonder and lose sight of who Jesus is and what he came to do, he's not going to abandon us either. I'm so thankful for this historic account we can look at and we can see the dangers associated. We can see Jesus lovingly correcting and bringing back his followers, bringing back his followers. And I'm hoping this text helps us as his followers, to be brought back on target. Here's who I am. Here's what I came to do. You can be effective in your mission. You can prioritize. You can worship. Because you're brought back into line. 
Well, before we actually look at the first danger associated, let's, let's just hear earlier from chapter 9 what Jesus has claimed, what others have claimed about him, uh, what he's claimed to be about, what he's claimed to do, who he's claimed to be. How about Luke 9, verse 20? It'll help us go into our passage in context. Luke 9, 20, it says, Then he said to them, Who do you say that I am? That's Jesus saying, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. Peter said a lot of wrong things in his life. Some of them are recorded in the Bible. This is not one of them. The Christ of God. He nails it. Who is Jesus? He's the Christ of God. The Messiah from the Old Testament world. The Messiah, the King, the unique King. The King that was anticipated with all other kings. And what did the King do? The the King of Israel, He's going to bring protection. He's going to bring deliverance. He's going to, to bring salvation for the people. He's going to bring justice. He's going to bring fairness. Here it says, He's the Christ. The long-awaited one. The deliverer. That's who not only Jesus claims to be, but Peter rightly recognizes him for who he is. He's the Christ of God. The ultimate one. How about verse 35? Verse 35 has the Father speaking about the Son, still answering the question, who is Jesus? It says in verse 35, And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. So we have Peter's testimony. Now we have God the Father's testimony. He's my Son. Elsewhere we would know He's His one and only Son. He's His unique Son. Who is Jesus? He's he's none other than the Son of God. the, The Divine One. The promised Son, that complements that Messiah idea who would deliver the people. He's that one. He's the chosen one. The ultimate chosen one. The ultimate delivering one. Who is Jesus? He's the ultimate Savior. The ultimate King. The ultimate long-awaited for one. He's the one, to quote from Matthew chapter 1, who will save His people from their sins. What did he come to do? What is he all about? How about chapter 9, verse 22? So we know who he is, but but what did he come to do? 9.22, it says, The Son of Man, that's a title referring to his Messiahship, his long-awaited, expected, promising deliverership, if you will. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised, which is elsewhere in Scripture labeled what? That's the gospel. That's another way of saying the gospel. What's he all about? He's all about being delivered over, giving himself over to atone for sins, to bring forgiveness, to secure our redemption, to to provide that great atoning sacrifice, to secure our forgiveness, to be raised from the dead, as Paul will say later, for our justification, so we can have a right standing before God. What did Jesus come to do? He came to secure salvation is what He came to do. He came to give give, give Himself for His people. Matthew 1. Or how about... Uh, another witness, verses 30 and 31. Last week we studied the, the transfiguration of Jesus. Uh, and it says in verse 30, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. So they're representative of the Old Testament. Who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. 
which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. There is no question whatsoever in the context what that's talking about. He's going to accomplish at Jerusalem. They're talking with Jesus about the very thing Jesus had already talked about. Going to the cross. Being raised from the dead. Providing atonement. Providing redemption. Who is Jesus? He's the divine son. The one we've been waiting for. The ultimate. What did he come to do? To be a good example? Yes. To be nice? Yes. To do everything perfectly? Yes. But without any question, what he came to do first and foremost, which we've seen this morning, he came to provide redemption. He came to save. He came to rescue. He came to deliver. He came to free us from the bondage of our sins. And so we should have it so clear it's not even funny. I mean, in one sense, you should just be going... Right? I mean, what else did you expect to hear at Omaha Bible Church today? You expected to hear something about who Jesus is and what He did. And guess what you're going to hear next week? Something about who Jesus is and what He did. We just keep going back to this, and we're never going to stop going back to this. And when we do, you should go somewhere else. Because we're supposed to boast in Christ and, and, and to know nothing else among... I mean, this is, this is it. This is, this is our A game and it's our only game. But what we're about to see, what we're about to see are the dangers associated with forgetting that. And it's so easy for us to forget it. We're going to forget it. You're going to forget it. These guys forget it. And Jesus lovingly brings us back to remind us to not forget it. It's a dangerous place for the church to have the name of Christ. Think of all the things that has been done in the name of Christ that has not been Christian because they've forgotten who Christ is and what Christ came to do. So many bad things have been done in the name of Christ. So much waste. So much even evil. And Jesus is going to help us to not go down that road without help. Okay, first danger brought by forgetting who Jesus is and what He came to do. Number one, faith in Christ. This is the danger. Faith in Christ drifts to faith in self. Faith in Christ drifts to faith in self if we don't remember who Jesus is and what He came to do. Verse 37 says, On the next day, I'm going to say that with with some emphasis, on the next day, we just went from Mount of Transfiguration, it's so clear who Jesus is, from heaven it's clear who Jesus is, not only that, he uh, we, we hear about what he's going to go accomplish, it's so clear what he's going to do, on the next day, so surely everybody's clear, nobody would ever forget it, it's the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, A great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. So he's demonized. Other gospel accounts, it's helpful to look at different gospel accounts to look like a harmony of the gospel. And you can see this has been going on for a long time. This is a heavy kind of thing. This is burdensome. Put yourself in this, in this parent's position. And then verse 40. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. 
And that is a major, major problem, verse 40 is. I want to say, if I'm really fresh reading through Luke, and if we were sitting through and reading all of Luke together, or even all of Luke 9 in one one sitting, which isn't um, practical, I want to say to that verse, that's not true. I asked your disciples, I begged them, and they couldn't. I want to say, yes, they can. If I'm Jesus, I want to say, they most certainly can. I know they can. And you say, why are you doing that? Why are you saying that? Look at verse 1, chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 1. Context is key. Context is king. It helps us to understand. And he, Jesus, called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. See? Jesus gave them the power to do it. And they can't. Problem with Jesus? No. Problem with the boy? Well, that's the obvious one. But the problem here is with the disciples. They have the power, but they couldn't do it. There's something gone gone awry. Something's gone amiss. Something is problematic, and it's with them. Verse 41 then says, Jesus answered. O faithless and twisted generation. Now, he, he's speaking pretty broadly, no doubt. But if, if, I were a, if I were a betting man, my dad used to say, um, if I were a betting man, I would bet I know where the eye contact is. Given the flow of everything, given chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus is looking at those disciples. They're the ones who are busted. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I with you and, and bear with you? Bring your son here. I don't, I don't think he's mad at the dad. You look at the parallel accounts and, and, and the, the, the dad says, I believe. Help my unbelief. I don't think his, his laser focus is at dad. I think it's at the disciples. Verse 42 says, While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. He has the power to do it. He does it. It's not the first time he's, uh, he's done it. He's showing, as we've said before, a preview of things to come. He's showing that he really is the delivering king. He's giving a foretaste of what he will do ultimately one day for everyone who's a believer and it will last forever. Ultimate deliverance and healing. But notice here, he says, faithless generation. And I, I, I wouldn't want to base my um, salvation on this. But best I can see, because the text doesn't exactly connect the dots for us, the best I can see, and others have determined this as well, he's focusing on the disciples when he says, in particular, faithless. They couldn't, do what they were commissioned and empowered to do because they'd gotten to the place where they thought they could do it. They're trusting in themselves and their giftedness, even God-given giftedness, and they're not trusting as is fitting in Christ and His power ultimately like they should be. Faithless, trustless. I think that's what he's getting at. 
a clue that's not, it's not a sure thing, but a clue that would support that view would be the fact that when you look at the parallel accounts, Jesus talks to them, his disciples, about the significance of prayer and getting rid of demons like this. And again, I don't want to go too far out on a limb here. But prayer does show faith. Prayer is evidence of dependence or trust or faith. Here the disciples could do it. They have the power to do it. And here they are doing it. Here they are healing. Here they are casting out demons. And now all of a sudden they can't do it anymore. But they should be able to do it. And Jesus rebukes them for being faithless, trustless. Best I can, I'm going to connect the dots too. They thought they could do it all by themselves and they're no longer depending upon the Lord and they're no longer showing and expressing their dependence in prayer. Maybe that's not it. I know everything that's recorded is true. We know that this is, is what happened. But trying to understand it better, I'm trying to understand it better. And I do know that my greatest act of my greatest declaration of independence, as someone has said, spiritually, is my prayerlessness. Think about it. I know who Jesus is. I know what Jesus did. I know what He accomplished. I know all those facts. But it's pretty easy for me to then just live my Christian life thinking I can just live my Christian life and I'm not reminded, unless I'm praying, of my absolute dependence on the Lord. As John 15, it just comes into my mind. John 15 says, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Point of conviction application for me this morning is, when I forget who Jesus is, the only one, the Christ of God, the Deliverer, my only hope. When I forget that, I think I can do ministry. I think I can do life on my own. And it shows up in my life when I don't pray. And so, I don't know how this is going to apply to you, um, but the passage applies to me. You know, one interpretation, many applications. I'm thinking these guys weren't praying. They weren't trusting in the Lord the way they should. And they were busy doing ministry. And all of a sudden, ministry came to a crashing halt. Not because Jesus is mean, but because He's caring and compassionate, and he says, hold it. You've forgotten that it all comes from me, even your ministries. Moving to verse 43. Verse 43 says, and all were astonished, not at the disciples' giftedness. <laughs> all were astonished at the majesty of God. I mean, if things would have been working in the right order, the disciples would have done this. And given the fact that that power would have come from God and would have been acknowledged as coming from God, the same response could have been true. They could have all been amazed at God. Verse 43 goes on to say, But while they were all marveling at everything He was doing, Jesus said to His disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man, the Messiah, the promised long-awaited one, is about to be delivered into the hands of men. He just keeps coming back to that. He's either talking about who He is, He's having someone else talk about who He is, or He's talking about what He's going to do. 
does it here. Takes every opportunity because we're so prone to wonder. Verse 45 then says, but they did not understand this saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might not, they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. And that's where I want to say about verse 45. They didn't understand this saying and I don't understand verse 45. <laughs> this, it is rather odd. At least from my limited perspective. Jesus tells them most important thing on planet earth and they don't understand it and it's concealed from them. More proof that no human being wrote the Bible. Um, <laughs> I'd smooth it out and make some more sense of it. Best I can surmise, and others have as well. It is the most important thing, and Jesus will keep talking about it, but for them to grasp it at this point in time and to actually come to grips with the weightiness and the significance of its implications and its meaning, they simply wouldn't be ready for it yet. Maybe. Best I can understand it. But a time will come where they will need to be able to go back and they'll need to retrace. And they do retrace. And then it makes sense later on when they're ready and when it's so vital that Jesus has been talking about this again and again and again and again. For now, I just want you to at least see that He keeps coming back to this. Because they keep forgetting. I think it's helpful to know that about Jesus because we keep forgetting. Now let's move on. We talked a little bit about faithless, the disciples being trustless or faithless. But now we're going to see something about that twisted part and that perverse part. Second danger. Second danger brought on by forgetting who Jesus is and what he came to do. Number two, being a Christian is about self-interest. There's a danger. When we forget who Jesus is and we forget about what he came to do, we're going to think that being a Christian is about a self-interest. He said, we would never do that. Well, let's see. They would never do that. Well, let's see. Verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. <laughs> you want an example of perversity? You want an example of twistedness? There you go. Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about before it even happened. He just talked about his Messiahship. He, he's the one we've been learning about. He, he's the one who's going to be delivered over. He's the one who's going to provide ultimate deliverance. He's the long-awaited king. He's the son. He's the chosen one. We've just had the transfiguration happen. This is extraordinary, amazing. And these guys are try, uh, trying to out Muhammad Ali each other. I am the greatest. No, I am the greatest. I am the great. I'm the greatest. They're having a fight about it. And you go, what in the world? Perverse. To be perverted means to be turned inside out. It's just, it's just so twisted. I mean, this is bizarre. And, and we name our churches after these kind of people. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you go, all right. <laughs> it's just kind of weird, huh? <laughs> Just pardon me for pointing out the obvious, but um, now when it comes to application, I'm just, here's a little sarcasm for you. I'm just glad there's no application here for us. <laughs> you know? 
I'm just so glad that we're not anything like these guys, you know, because if we understand the gospel, you know, and we're gospel centered and we're gospel driven and we know it's first importance and, and we know all these things and, and somehow it's about Pat and how many Twitter followers he has and, and how many people retweet my posts. How many Facebook friends do you have? How big is your church, Pastor? What kind of conferences do you speak at? Who's your agent? None of those things are bad. But even in the name of Christ so many times, it's about self-promotion and self-advancement. And we can be staring at Jesus right in the face, so to speak, if we're like these disciples, so not exactly the same. And be perverted spiritually. And if it was a danger for them and they're right there with Jesus, I know that it's a danger for me. I know that it's a danger for you. Absolutely is. My Christianity is about me and my self-promotion and what I know and what my influence is and what I can do. It's convicting. In fact, I'm afraid it's so convicting that you're going to conclude, this is so convicting, I'm so glad Jesus is a good convictor. You know? What a mean guy. I love Jesus. He's mean. He makes me feel bad. Don't do that. How about he loves them so much and cares about them so truly that he doesn't let it go? He cares about you if you belong to Him in such a unique way that He wants you to see this stuff and see how perverse it is so you don't live the life of a spiritual pervert. It doesn't make any sense. We've got to keep coming back to who is Jesus? What did Jesus come here to do? He came here to be the object of our worship, the object of our affection to patiently, kindly, graciously bring us back and back again, not living in the world of delusion, but in reality, because He really is this one. Let's keep moving. Time for an object lesson. Verse 47, But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, you know, usually when you read that, you know, in Greek it means duck. <laughs> it doesn't really, but the idea is it, what I'm getting at is, I mean, when you, when he, he knows somebody's hearts, our tendency in, in our kind of biblically illiterate, you know, Christian pop culture, oh, this is going to be good because, you know, uh, I'm totally wrong on everything, but Jesus knows my heart kind of thing. When you read Jesus knew their hearts, you go, hello, <laughs> you know, take shelter because he knows their hearts. took a child and, and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Maybe just put your finger there for a second and, and, and think in terms of, of a culture different from ours 
that, that doesn't so orient everything to a childhood culture where adults are trying their best to dress like kids. It used to be the other way around, at least even in our, our day, where you grew up and wanted to dress like mom and dad. Now dad wants to dress like son. Uh, I mean, so it's so child-centered in our world, in a youth-driven culture. Um, this was not that. Probably inappropriately, it was not that, where maybe children would be very insignificant too insignificant unless they were royalty. Jesus takes a quote-unquote insignificant one. I'm not saying that's his worldview. But he takes an insignificant one. Somebody without power, without prestige, without accomplishment, without status. And then let's keep reading. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Here's a a least child. That's how he'd be viewed or she would be viewed. Object lesson. And then he makes the point. There's no difference in who you are if you're in me. Everybody's equal. Whether you have no status or great status, everybody's equal. And we know that to be true and it's unpacked elsewhere in Scripture. If you're in Christ, if you're united to Christ, there's, there's no difference between a man and a woman. Galatians 3. There's no difference between a slave or a free person. It doesn't matter who you are. He uses two extreme kinds of examples. When we forget, here it is. Here, here's where we're coming back to. When we forget who Jesus is and we for, forget what He came to do, all of a sudden, it's about status. It's about who I am and my ministry and your ministry, and your Christian influence, and my Christian influence. And it just ought not be that way is what we're seeing seeing here. We don't boast in ourselves, we boast in Christ. We boast in our weakness, Second Corinthians 12.5. I had to ask myself the question. How much of my life, even as a Christian, is about the promotion of myself? Let me just bounce that ball to you. I love you so much. (laughs) How much of your life, even as a Christian, is about the promotion of yourself? And again, we can say, man, Jesus is a spoil sport. He just insulted us. No, He cares. You know what it's like when somebody's living a delusional life? I'm not looking at anybody. I'm looking at everybody. When somebody's living a delusional kind of life and they're not in touch with reality... They're some of the most pathetic people. And what you want to do is you want to help them get in touch with what's real. Not because you're mean. You just want them to deal with the real world in a real life. Jesus isn't mean here. He wants them to deal with the real world in real life. And guess who Jesus is? He's the, emphasis there, the Christ of God. The One. Talk about delusional to think that the world centers around me. That's crazy. If he is who he claimed to be and came to do what he said he claimed to do. What a good Savior. What a kind Savior he is to do that on our behalf. Gracious. Compassionate. Let's move on. Let's move on to a third danger when we forget about who Jesus is and what he came to do. The danger is Confusing, okay, big theological words, just because I know some of you 
want to make sure you get what you paid for. Confusion between orthodoxy and unorthodoxy. Theological word for the day. We'll talk about it. Don't need to learn it. Don't need to write it down. But if you want to, you can. The reality is going to be there. When we forget who Jesus is, we, we get confused. We, we, we think at times that which is orthodox is unorthodox. And that which is unorthodox is orthodox. If something's orthodox, it's accepted. And we speak of it in Christian um, circles at times, not the Orthodox Church. We're not talking about that. It's a big claim to claim to be the Orthodox Church, by the way. Uh, We are the accepted church. But in a conversation that we would be having like this, to be Orthodox is to embrace something that Christians accept as true. The Trinity is an orthodox doctrine, an orthodox teaching. You know, if I say that, you pretty much, almost all of you know exactly what I'm getting at. The deity and humanity of Jesus, Christians now have affirmed for a long time since Christ has been around. It's orthodox. It's accepted. To be unorthodox is to say something other than that which is generally accepted by the church throughout history, biblical teaching. When we don't remember what Jesus came to do, when we don't remember who Jesus is, we start getting them confused. We start thinking that which is wrong is right. We start thinking that which is wrong or right is wrong. Or we can't do either one. We just say we don't even know. We don't have a point of stand. We don't have a point of standard. And we see a couple um, things that happen here that'll help us to realize if we know who Jesus is, we can know right from wrong. We can know right from wrong and wrong from right verse 49 says john answered master we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him just maybe stop there for a second and just chuckle with me the faithless perverted ones okay who couldn't cast out the demon they want to feel better about themselves and we stopped others who were doing it feeling better about myself Right? Kind of interesting. Because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. There's not a lot I can say about those two verses other than they're true because Jesus said them. Um, Not much elaboration happens. Looking at other gospel accounts doesn't help us a lot. But apparently they were doing the right thing. They were. We know that. They were doing it in the right name. Jesus. They're on the right team even though they're not with us. Okay? Jesus affirms their orthodoxy. Jesus says they're okay. Jesus affirms them. Not a lot is said, but based upon who Jesus is and what He's teaching, what they're doing is consistent with Him. Even though they're not inside the club per se. Even though they might not do everything exactly with us, apparently they are with us based upon what they're doing and how they're doing it. Now we, by way of contrast, we move to to something else that happens when it comes to orthodox and 
non-Orthodox. Verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Verse 52, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. 53, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So I I underline three important things here. His face is set toward Jerusalem, it says in verse 51. Verse 53, his face is set toward Jerusalem uh, uh, is a repeat of that, secondly. And then number three, he's in the village of the Samaritans. You need to know that the Samaritans um, were part of, let's just, for simplicity's sake, they're they're a cult. Okay? They're a break off of Judaism that is outside the pale. They're unorthodox. Um, Jesus, in his interaction in John chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman, he's kind to her, he's gracious to her, he tells the truth to her, but he does correct her, and he does say she's wrong in so many words when he says salvation is of the Jews. Read, not the Samaritans. The Samaritans had their own worship system. They deny the centrality of Jerusalem. Therefore, they deny that which is taught biblically about the coming Messiah and Jerusalem, Mount Zion. And they do that because they deny major portions of the Old Testament as authoritatively coming from God. We might call them a cult. They're outside the boundaries. Okay? Samaritans. Now what's fascinating about this is, knowing that, Jesus goes there, Knowing full well what Samaritans were about. The disciples would have known full well what Samaritans were about. He goes to Samaria knowing these things. Therefore, he would know what the people would want from him. What their expectations would be of him. And instead of giving them what they would want, his face, by way of contrast, radical contrast, is set, is fixated, is centered upon Jerusalem. And then it says it again. Face is set toward Jerusalem. Samaritans are wrong. And he's not the one-size-fits-all savior to capitulate and compromise and say, well, if, if, if that's what you believe in your heart, it's fine and it's true. He exposes their unorthodoxy. And he himself defines orthodoxy. The long-awaited, promised Messiah, Jerusalem, Zion. He's the one. How can we come to these kinds of conclusions? We come to these kinds of conclusions by way of application, remembering who Jesus is. He is the Son. He is the Chosen One. And therefore, He has everything to do with going to Jerusalem to be delivered over, to make atonement. True temple. Not the Samaritan offshoot. Now, by way of application, putting it all together, how do you know truth from error? How do you know right from wrong, spiritually speaking? Samaritans seemed pretty sincere, went to great costs, took it on the chin, persecuted. We don't know orthodoxy and unorthodoxy based upon sincerity. We know orthodoxy, unorthodoxy based upon who Jesus is, what he came here to do. 
And you could say, that seems closed-minded and mean. How about it seems super loving, kind and gracious that Jesus wouldn't leave them and say, well, you Samaritans, if that's what you believe in or sincere, it's fine. If it's not, the loving, kind, gracious, compassionate thing was for him with double emphasis to have his face set toward Jerusalem. I am the promised one. It's another way of saying what he says in John 4. Salvation is of the Jews. My friends, how do you know right from wrong? How can you say that's a cult today? How could you say that's a false religion today? Based upon yourself? That's arrogant. That's prideful. How can we say something's right and we know that it's right? Well, because I say it's right. That's prideful and arrogant. Self-authority. Who is Jesus? What did He come here to do? Okay then. The one who's been given all authority, by the way, so it makes all the sense in the world. Enough of that. This is exciting. This is freeing. This is so helpful. And it draws us back into remembering why we need to know who Jesus is and why we need to know what He came to do. Fourth danger, if we forget. Fourth danger of taking our eye off the ball. Number four, mercilessness is eclipsed. Mercilessness is eclipsed. In other words, we forget about mercy. That's a better way of saying it, right? We forget about mercy. Verse 54 makes this clear. Uh, And when his disciples James and John, I think those are the same two in Mark chapter 3, verse 17, who are called the sons of thunder. This makes sense to have them be the sons of thunder. James and John saw it. They said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Just say the word, Lord. Never mind the fact they couldn't cast out the demons. But anyway, we, we, we won't read it in context. Should we just get them, Lord? We'll just... You know? Smoke them all. And by the way, let me ask you the question. Did they deserve to be smoked? As in wiped out? As in judged? Let's just say that it would have happened. Could the angels in heaven still say, Holy, holy, holy? Yeah. Wages of sin is death. Condemnation, judgment. Be just. Samaritans, it's a cult. Wipe them out. They're promoting bad things. Or others. And Jesus in verse 55 it says, But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. All eyes closed, every head bowed. (laughs) They went on to another village. (laughs) You see, when we forget the gospel, when we forget who Jesus is and why he came here, We're going to want to be like those guys. You know, when you see somebody do the wrong thing, maybe a false teacher, and you just say, you know, Lord, just just let let me do the kindling. Just just give me the privilege of... You know? And by the way, there's something right about that desire. Because false teaching is bad and leads people astray, and bad things are bad, and we want to see bad things and say, that's bad. 
But we have to remember the gospel. And Jesus came here, and if he gave everybody what they deserved, which is kind of how I want it to be sometimes, now that I'm in. Right? Smoke them, Lord. Right? That's kind of how we are. So what we need, because what's going to happen? You're going to leave here, and you're going to do social media, or you're going to watch TV, or get on the Internet, or get cut off, or whatever it is. World filled with injustice against the weak, against you, and you're going to have that tendency, and there's something about it that's right, get them. So what you need to do is come back to Omaha Bible Church next Sunday and be reminded of the gospel. It's one of the reasons why we're here. It's one of the reasons because we have to remember who Jesus is and what he came here to do. Just think about your own life, okay? Romans chapter 5 says, apart from Christ, you're God's enemy. Ephesians chapter 2 says you're spiritually dead and, and hostile, by nature a child of wrath. I need somebody to keep telling me that kind of thing. Because you know what? When somebody does something wrong to me, I want to get them. And then somebody does something wrong to someone who is weak and lacks any kind of power, I really want to get them. And I do need to remember that God has shown me mercy. He's not given me what I deserve. The Lord Jesus Christ is a merciful Savior and He's long-suffering. When we forget who He is and what He came to do, we're going to be merciless. Think about that person who's wronged you. Think about that. Maybe you shouldn't, but sorry to do it to you. The strained relationship, the broken relationship, the really bad thing that actually has been done against you, and we've all got them. And I'm not here to tell you that those things are right. I'm here to tell you that God has been merciful to you. You know that because of the gospel. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. All right. Helpful. Reorients everything. Thank you, Jesus, for helping us to see that. Gospel brings us back. Let's move on now to this final one. Number five, fifth danger when we forget Jesus and why He came. Um, insincere devotion. There's insincere devotion. We'll work, we'll work through this one rather quickly. Sorry to do that to you, but um, we're going to work through it pretty quickly. Insincere devotion, verses 57 and following. And here's another warning. You're going to think Jesus is mean. Maybe not, but you might want to think that. I'm going to suggest to you he's going to speak bluntly and pointedly with people because he's a loving and gracious Savior, and he doesn't want people to stay self-deluded. Okay. Another important thing is he's already shown us he can read people's minds. He already knows what's going on in people's minds. He already knows what's going on in people's hearts. Um, something we can't do. So he can call these people who have this insincere devotion, insincere profession, he can call them on it because he knows. Does he do that because he's mean? Or does he do that because he's a loving Savior who doesn't want them to stay in that state? It's the latter, right? He's compassionate. So let's go ahead and work through these verses. Verse 57, and they were going along the road. Someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, that's the Messiah, promised, awaited, long-awaited, delivering King, has nowhere to lay his head. 
And I don't blame you if you read that and you go, that's rude. I mean, there was just one more person who came up to him and said, I'm in. And Jesus says, don't think so. Well, Jesus knows what's going on in the guy's heart. Oh, you want to be associated with a king? You want to be associated with the Messiah, the deliverer? That, that That's appealing, right? It's appealing because that means you'll have power. That means you'll have prestige. You're on the right team. We're going to wipe out the Romans. Uh, let me just, just tell you one important thing. I'm homeless. Jesus apparently knew that that wouldn't be what this guy was wanting to sign up for, so he just lets him know. You know, they're on the way too, according to verse fifty-one. They're 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 on their way to Jerusalem. I mean, they're going for the they're going for the cross before the crown. Jesus lets him know. Oh, you want me to complete your life and give you more authority or more status? No, Jesus says no to him. Not because he's mean, but because he knows his heart, apparently. Verse 59 says, And to another he said, Follow me. So now Jesus initiates. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Some of you with study Bibles have a note in there that says something about a common figure of speech. Um, Let me wait till I receive my inheritance. From what I know, that's on the right target. Common saying. Let me first go bury my father. Many would conclude, this guy's dad's not dead. I mean, Jesus taught, honor your father and mother. This isn't a contradiction to that. Jesus, I I do want to follow you, but I first need to go claim my inheritance. You know, I'm not really sure how it's going to work out for you when you go into Jerusalem. um, And at least I have a plan to fall back on, you know. I'm trying to be fiscally responsible. Um, okay, nothing wrong with that either. But what we have to remember is, he's the Christ of God. He's the one. He's the ultimate one that all of history has been waiting for and he's just said, you come, you follow me. And you're like, oh, I think I'll go and... Get my inheritance first. See how it works out for you. And then I'll see if I want to sign up or not. Start a business, you know. Might not work. I mean, you just go, this is crazy. Think about a celebrity. If you, uh, your favorite musician, your favorite author, your favorite actor, actress, your favorite, you know, business guru, favorite artists, they're going to come to town and you have an opportunity because you know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody and you're going to have dinner with them. I say go, you know, I'm in. How cool would that be? I, I would drop all sorts of things. Family commitments, church commitments. Um, I'd be like, you know, this is a, this is a great opportunity. I'm going. This is, I, and I would tell you, you should go for it. Once in a lifetime opportunity. Nothing wrong with that. And what you're going to do, you're going to go talk to the person you think is the best musician, uh, whether whatever the instrument is, or the, the, the best author. This is your, your hero. I'm going to say, go for it. But you see where I'm going. The Christ of God yeah, I'll follow you after my dad dies and I collect and my timetable, maybe. 
You see, that, that, that's, that doesn't even make sense. If we had a lunch set up and we're going to sit together and have lunch just because we hadn't talked for a while and it'd be good if we did that. And uh, you said, you know, um, it's good to have lunch with you. Um, I thought I was going to have to cancel because I got invited to, you know, have dinner with the president. I want to keep my word to you, though. And I'd go, are you stupid? It doesn't even make sense. You should have gone with the greater one, regardless of your political views. Well, this just blows that away. The Christ of God, the King, who promises perfect deliverance, restoration, hope, forgiveness, everything. So, this guy is not really into it. It's not really real. And Jesus isn't mean. He's kind and gracious and loving for saying what he says. Verse 60. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Wow. Verse 61, there's one more. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Again, the Bible teaches, Jesus affirms to, to respect those who should be respected like father and mother. Jesus knows the person's heart. It's an excuse. Excuses have their place. But when we're talking about who Jesus is and what he came to do, it's the only rational decision. You follow Him. You follow Him. He has the words of eternal life. He's the Christ. The Christ of God. Wow! We're prone to spiritual amnesia, aren't we? We forget so easily. We forget all the time. And you know, if they forgot in the first century when they just witnessed Jesus transfigured, it's no wonder we forget. It's no wonder we forget. God in His perfect wisdom has given us reminders like coming and hearing the preaching of God's Word and He's given us His Word, the Scriptures. He's given us things like the Lord's Supper and we're to do this in remembrance of Him. It just recalibrates us again. He knew we were prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So God in His goodness isn't mean-spirited. He's kind and gracious and He uses all these different kinds of means to bring us back, to help us, so let's do our very best by God's grace to see Jesus for who He is and know why He came here and great things will happen. Father, thank You for our time this morning. Thank You for Your great Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is worthy of our praise, worthy of our exaltation, and we're delighting in Him. Lord, help us to realize that as we leave here, it's not just one more thing for us to do. Just help us to remember what Christ has done. Help us to remember who Christ is and, and not just think of Jesus as a concept or an idea or a doctrine. That He indeed is the one who became one of us. Did everything on our behalf that we would need to do and don't do. And He did them perfectly. And then He gave Himself up to be treated as if He were the spiritual rebels that we are. So that His work could be credited to us. So that You would accept us because of Jesus. 
In his name we pray, amen.